It is a beautiful sound when God's people sing the praises of their God. It is befitting, for He is worthy of all praise, and it is becoming of His people to do so. Amen? Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. If you need a pew Bible, and you don't have a Bible, you can take the pew Bible and turn to page 1201. James chapter 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be a false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's offer our hearts up to the Lord in prayer. Lord, your word says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, you have sent your eternal son to be the living word. You have sent your eternal spirit to give us the written word. And Lord, Jesus Christ is our wisdom who has come down from above. Lord, we pray that hearts would be open this morning. That where there is jealousy and strife or envy, where there is jockeying for position or influence, that Lord, we would be humbled. That we would be hearers and doers of your word. And the wisdom from above would be bring peace to our hearts. If any are here anxious, discouraged, maybe coming here and thinking they'll give God one more chance, then, Lord, I pray that your wisdom that brings righteousness, that brings peace, will penetrate hearts for the glory of the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We are continuing in our series through the book of James. We are here in the middle of chapter 3, a book that is all about real faith or real for real life. This morning we're going to be talking about, in the sense of that real faith for real life, real wisdom now for real life. So with that in mind, let us start with a question And that is, are you a wise person? Are you a wise person? Just imagine, if you will, if James was alive here today. James was standing in my spot, and he's asking this question as he is asking the churches that he's writing to. Are you a wise person? 
or in the words that he writes here in verse 13, who is, who is wise and understanding among you? That is the question that James puts forth to us. And so you might even also imagine the, the buzzing going on in the gathered assembly in James' day as, as those people that have gathered in those Jewish churches begin looking around, not quite sure if they should, should raise their hand or if they should actually stand up. Now, James knows that nobody is going to raise their hand and just abruptly say, well, not me, I'm not wise, I'm an idiot. Nobody confesses that. Nobody admits, I'm an idiot. But James, on the other hand, he is actually anticipating that most everyone in the churches that he's writing to, in which this letter is being read to, are going to raise their hands somewhat and, and maybe say something in their hearts like this. I don't, I don't want to be presumptuous, but I think I'm fairly wise. In fact, James knows that just about everybody hearing this will read verse 13 or, or hear verse 13 read, who is wise and understanding among you? And, and they will think in their own minds and hearts, you know, I, I may not be as wise as some Christians, but I know but I'm way ahead of a bunch of people sitting around me. So count me in in that wise group, not the idiot group. I'm not part of that group. I'm part of the wise group. And then James follows up the question by effectively saying, thank you for raising your hand. Now show me. Show me your wisdom. And that's when we might think to ourselves, why did I raise my hand? Can I change my answer here about now? And James says, it's too late. Let me describe for you now a wise person. Here's what real wisdom looks like. And what we have here in the rest of the passage in verses 14 through 18 is James is now contrasting for us this, this idea of false wisdom and he's contrasting that with real wisdom. And so in this passage is a contrast of, of again, false wisdom to, to real wisdom, or what we might even call true wisdom. False wisdom, true wisdom, real wisdom. And immediately you see there's implications that fall out of that. Because if there's false wisdom and true wisdom, then that means, the implication is, there's really only two ways to live in this world. In fact, notice this in your notes. There is like a way to live that's wise, and there is a way to live that's foolish. Now, you would be very hard-pressed to find someone who would disagree with that. To disagree that there, there is no dumb way to live, because after all, we can look around us and see, well, that's dumb. That, that's a foolish way to live. We, we see that with our own eyes. Even the world sees that. That's dumb. That's a dumb way to live. Why are you doing that? Most people agree that, that playing video games all day and hanging out with friends at night is not the smartest way to live, especially, well, if you're an adult. That might be okay if you're in middle school, but when you turn 27, that's not the smartest way to live. Most people agree with that. Most people know that there is a way to live that is wise and there is a way to live that is foolish, what most people don't realize, though, is only one of those ways works. And that's where this falls apart, at least in our world. And James wants to come to us as 
followers of Jesus Christ, and he wants us to see, he wants us to understand the difference between these two ways to live because only one of these ways works. And here's why. Notice this. God has designed the world to work in a specific way that leads to his glory in our joy. And the wise embrace this truth, but the foolish reject that truth. And, and you see this all throughout God's word, all throughout the scriptures. In fact, I'm going to encourage you just to see this for yourself in a couple of passages. Turn with me, if you will, to Job chapter 28. See this for yourself. See what Job writes here in Job 28, verses 23 through 28. And it says, but God understands the way to wisdom. God understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its location, for he looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. In fact, when God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, so in other words, Job is talking about the time when God created the world, he considered wisdom and evaluated He established it and examined it. He said to mankind, the fear of the Lord. Now that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. So that is Job telling us, God telling us through Job. And then turn over to Proverbs chapter 8 in verses 32 and 36. In fact, in this whole chapter of Proverbs 8, what you find here is wisdom is now personified. And in it, when it says, and so it's like wisdom is speaking, it's personified, and look what it says here. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. The me is wisdom speaking. And so wisdom is calling out and saying to the world, listen to me. Listen to wisdom. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me. In other words, listens to wisdom watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, whoever finds me, that is, whoever finds wisdom, finds what? Life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. And so immediately we see the implications of all this, what we see here in these two passages. There is a way to live that's wise. There's a way to live that's foolish. And there's only one way that works. The world may say, this is, this is the way to live, but God comes and he says, this is the only way to live that works, though. In fact, the beginning of real wisdom is understanding that God has designed the world in which we live, and even our own lives, to work in a very specific way that actually leads to his glory as well as our joy, even on this earth. As the creator, God knows how life works. He knows what works best for us as his creation. And he has not abandoned us to just fumble our way through life, but rather he has revealed to us a way to live that works. And of course, we find that in the scriptures. God has said, if you you walk in my wisdom, you will find life, You will be blessed. In other words, it will lead to a life of joy. But if you walk in the false wisdom, the folly of the false wisdom of this world, in the words of Proverbs there, you will hurt yourself. And you will love death. In other words, your life will not work out. 
sooner or later. You will not live a life of joy, but a life of heartache and misery. And so what James has to say here about real wisdom now for real life is super important for our lives as Christ followers. Now, in the immediate context of chapter 3 here in James, what he's doing, he's actually showing us real wisdom for real life that leads us to these harmonious relationships and even harmony in the body of Christ, the church. Think about of all the places where we, we need, desperately need real wisdom, it's in our relationships with one another. So let's look at this, real wisdom for real life. First of all, number one, James is showing us here that real wisdom is displayed by this beautiful life that is marked by meekness. Now, again, James is like the show-me guy from Missouri. You know, we are the show-me state. And when it comes to faith, James has already said, don't just tell me you have faith, but rather show me you have faith. And now James, once again, he says the same thing when it comes to wisdom. In other words, he's saying, don't just tell me you have some wisdom. Show me your wisdom. Show me your life, a life that is beautiful and marked by meekness. James writes in verse 13, look at, after asking the question, who is wise and understanding among you, he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so James says here, listen, who is wise among you? Show me. Show me your wisdom. Why? Because according to James, notice this, real wisdom is seen. And it is seen not so much by what we know, but rather by how we live. You see, we tend to equate, or the world definitely does, equates wisdom with knowledge. And so we tend to look to people who know the most as being the wise, being the most wise. But James is not here equating wisdom with one's grade point average or graduate diploma. Listen, the truth is there are plenty of smart fools in our world with vast amounts of knowledge, but who are very far from God. In fact, King Solomon tells us in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that a relationship with God is the entry point for real wisdom. In other words, you can be smart without God, but you cannot be wise without God. We read in Romans chapter 1 where unbelievers reject the truth about God. And then they actually proclaim themselves to be wise. And Paul writes that they have become fools instead. And what's interesting, the Greek word there for fool in Romans chapter 1 verse 22 is where we actually get our English word moron, which means it's possible you can be a brilliant moron in a, in a biblical sense of the word. And so James is asking this question. He's putting it front and center for us. Who is wise among you? It's evident that who he's writing to, these churches, they tended to equate those, the wise with those who, who knew the most. But James comes along and says, no, the answer to who is wise is the one who has this beautiful life the one who, who lives a beautiful life. You see, according to James, real wisdom is seen not by how much we know, but by one's good conduct, rather than by one's brain power and what they know academically or even intellectually. Now, James, 
by the way, he's not writing off this need for biblical knowledge of God and his ways that are found in Scripture. James here is simply emphasizing and he's showing us where such wisdom, that is true wisdom, real wisdom, what we're going to call godly wisdom, he's showing us where it is seen. He says it's seen in, in good conduct. That's the term he uses, the phrase he uses. Real wisdom is seen in good conduct. And in that phrase, you take the word good, and it actually means beautiful, and it describes a beautiful life. In other words, how we live now, according to the wisdom of God, it's a beautiful life from his point of view. And so James is like, who is wise among you? And James says the answer is the wise are people who live beautiful lives according to God's way. In other words, the way they speak with one another, it's beautiful. The way they act, especially in relation to one another, it's beautiful. He says that's how you know if somebody is wise or not. In other words, the evidence of, of real wisdom that counts, that works, is seen in a beautiful life. And James says that that beautiful life is marked by something. It's marked by meekness. Meekness. That's not a word we use too often in our culture. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the, what? Meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, that's counter to our culture that says win at all costs. In fact, even in James' day, the Greek culture viewed meekness as a sign of weakness. In other words, in James' day, in that culture in which they live, the weak, just like in our culture, in their minds, the weak don't inherit the earth. They get ground into the earth. The weak, meek are doormats for the human race even in James' culture as well as our culture, at least the how our culture tends to view it. But that's not what James meant here by meekness. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, a simple definition of meekness is simply power under control. So it's not weakness. It is power, but it's under control. And in this sense, it's under control of God's wisdom, God's spirit, God's word. All we have to do is, is look back in the Old Testament for an example of this. You for example, the life of Moses. Moses was a very powerful leader who had the courage to stand before the most powerful king at that time, a pharaoh, and demand to that pharaoh, let my people go. That was power under control, and yet he's described in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, very meek, more than any other man on the face of the earth. And so when James says, who is wise among you, he's not looking out there for people who are the smartest and know the most. He's looking for people with these beautiful lives. That is their conduct that is marked by meekness. Why? Because real wisdom is not about how much you know, but how you live. Now what James does next here in verses 14 through 18, is he contrasts for us this worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. He wants us now to see the difference between these two ways to live. One is foolish, one is wise, but only one way works. Only God's way leads to his glory and our joy. So number two, point two here, real wisdom is now distinguished 
from worldly wisdom from below. Now, it is, it is rather important that we understand the difference here between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom because James is going to show us that they are diametrically opposed to each other. Notice what James writes about worldly wisdom in verses 14 through 16. James says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but rather it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambitions exist. So you can already see James is keen on not what we know, but what? But what? Our, our behavior, our conduct. He's keen on one's life and how they live it out. And he's saying, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now, James, again, please don't misunderstand. He's not saying that the world does not have wisdom. Just as we saw earlier, I believe chapter 2, just as demons have faith, the world has its version of wisdom. The problem is that God is not the object of the demon's faith, right? And the problem is the same here with the world's wisdom. God is not the origin of worldly wisdom, and because of that, both are doomed to fail. The demon's faith doesn't work, just as the world's wisdom doesn't work. Neither the demon's faith nor the world's wisdom works, and they don't lead to God's glory. They don't bring us lasting joy. So now we come to the source of this worldly wisdom. James is telling us where it comes from. Worldly wisdom comes from Satan below, and he describes it as it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And so notice this, first of all, worldly wisdom is earthly. In other words, the wisdom of the world is earthbound. And what that means is that when you embrace the world's wisdom, the world's wisdom by itself, in and of itself, there's, there's no consideration for God. There's no consideration of factoring God's ways and God's truth into the equation of one's life. It's earthbound, it's short-sighted, it's limited to the horizontal plane. There is no looking up, or since God has revealed himself in his word, there's no looking into his word for consideration to bring into the mix the wisdom of God and what he says of how life works best for us. It's earthly in that regard. Remember, God has designed the world and our lives to to work in a very certain way, specific way, that leads to his glory and our joy. But the wisdom of the world, it rejects this perspective. It rejects this worldview. The wisdom of the world, it shuts out God. It it shuts out what God says, and it limits its focus to purely the horizontal, to purely the things of the world. But the problem James tells us, goes even deeper than it just being earthly. He actually says that this kind of wisdom is the complete antithesis of anything that is from God when he says it's unspiritual and demonic. Now, this word unspiritual just means natural. Paul used the same word over in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, where Paul writes the natural person, or in other words, the unspiritual person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. 
and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, the things of God are discerned because you now have the Spirit of God in you. Well, the wisdom of the world doesn't have that. They're, they're natural, they're fleshly, they're unspiritual. The natural un, or unspiritual person, in other words, is also spiritually blind to the very things of God, blind to the truth of God. And this word that P, P, James uses of demonic just means, means demon-inspired. In other words, it comes from Satan. The root, the origin of the worldly wisdom in which we are saturated with by our culture is, is from Satan himself. Demonic inspiration. In fact, you go back to Genesis chapter 3 in the Genesis account there where the serpent tempted Eve to do what? To basically trust his wisdom instead of God's wisdom. And the devil is doing the same thing today in every one of our lives. This is why we, we need to remember a crucial factor in our growth in real wisdom, and that is our perspective, our, our own worldview. David Platt writes in his commentary on the book of James, the wisdom of the world doesn't see things in light of eternity, but in terms of the immediate perceived impact, what is best for self-advancement or self-pleasure now. Listen, that, that is a dangerous perspective to live by because it's doomed to failure, first of all. And it's also, it destroys relationships. And that's what we see in our world. And now James comes and he gives us this profile of worldly wisdom. The source is Satan, and now he gives us the profile that is motivated by two things specifically. James says that this wisdom of the world is motivated by, first of all, bitter jealousy and then selfish ambition. The wisdom of the world measures everything, in other words, how it affects you. It's concerned by how you can advance yourself, promote yourself, assert yourself. And so when looking at conversations, when looking at conversations, circumstances, the question it always is from the perspective of the world is what can I get out of this? How does this benefit me? And when we don't get what we want or what we think we deserve, we are filled now with this bitter jealousy. Why? Because we are filled with selfish ambition. In fact, James points to these same two things later on in verse 16. And so he mentions them twice. Look what he says in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Now you go back up to verse 14, and it's interesting. Where do bitter jealousy and selfish ambition exist? James says, according to verse 14, they exist where? In the heart. In the heart. James writes in verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So the key to understanding what James is saying here is this verb to have. But if you have bitter jealousy, if you have selfish ambition, why? Because that verb to have, it actually means to harbor. To harbor. And to harbor something means you do what? You give it a safe place to stay. And what the wisdom of the world does, it gives 
a very safe place in people's hearts for bitter jealousy and selfish ambition to reside there and then show itself in our conduct, in how we live. And in this case, the person who lives by worldly wisdom, they don't just struggle with bitter jealousy. They don't just struggle with selfish ambition. They harbor it. And the problem is, as we've already seen, Jesus has already told us this, whatever is in the heart will always do what? It eventually comes out in our speech and in our actions, our conduct, which is, again, why James, opposite of worldly wisdom, says godly wisdom, the fruit of it is this beautiful life marked by meekness. Now, this is why James is showing us that real wisdom is relational. Real wisdom is relational here. You see, the world primarily views wisdom how? Intellectually. Real wisdom thinks wisdom is intellectual, but James is showing us that real wisdom is relational. That is, when one has real wisdom from God, let me tell you, that is the ability now to build and even maintain healthy relationships. And when someone is unable to build and maintain healthy relationships, mark it down, they they do not have real wisdom. They are following the wisdom of the world. Because it always plays out relationally. And that's what James is keying on here. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is the root of relational dysfunction in our homes and even in churches. And then you see it play out in our, across our world, in the workplace, where we play, where we, you name it. In fact, I can give you an example of that even. Most of you know, well, most of you probably don't know. Some of you know, I, I, I play baseball. Yeah, not softball, but baseball. And, uh, and there's a new guy on one of my teams I play on. And, and this guy, he, he, he follows the wisdom of the world, and he's, in a sense, he is a cancer on our team. He, he can't, our team basically tolerates him. He can't maintain any kind of healthy relationships. And so, now obviously as a Christ follower, man, my, God's burdened my heart for this guy. So I've tried to befriend him. I've tried to come alongside him and just talk with him and try to get to know him, just his background. He's a year younger than I am. And he's, he's not married, uh, and, he, and basically his companion is a dog, because only a dog will get along with him. It's, it's sad, but it's, it's like it was a visual picture of the wisdom of the world. It plays out relationally. And now we see the heart, or the result of worldly wisdom here. Worldly wisdom results in disorder, in every evil practice. This is what happens when bitter jealousy combines with selfish ambition. James says it results in disorder in every evil practice. Disorder, what does that even mean? It means exactly what you're kind of thinking it means. It it speaks of conflict. It speaks of confusion. It speaks of chaos. So just think about that in one's relationships now. 
Every evil practice refers to corruption. And so the result of, of worldly wisdom is conflict, confusion, chaos, and corruption in our relationships in society. This is what happens when we reject God's wisdom and we embrace the world's wisdom. And this is expected in our culture that rejects God. We should not expect anything different. It should be no surprise that we see so much conflict and confusion and chaos in people's relationships who are unbelievers and then even see corruption in all of its evil forms in institutions and government and workplaces, you name it, and throughout that permeates our society. But James, that's not what he's keying on. James is focused, and he is very concerned with how the wisdom of the world that we are saturated with because we live out in the world, he's concerned about how we might, might be affected by that wisdom, embrace that wisdom, and bring it into our relationship within the home and the church. And James is wanting us to know that that kind of wisdom, it destroys relationships. It results in this division and disharmony. Such wisdom, it robs us of love and trust and fellowship in harmony with one another. And that's why we desperately need real wisdom for real life. So what is real wisdom? I'm glad you asked that. James wants to answer that question for you. Notice this, number three, real wisdom is defined by godly wisdom from above. James has just described for us worldly wisdom and its miserable fruit. And now he describes godly wisdom and its beautiful fruit. Look what he writes in verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. And that open to reason, that just means, think of the idea, you're, you're, you're open to God's ways. You're open to God's truth. You're, you're teachable to it full of mercy and good fruits, impartial. James is already keyed on impartiality in chapter 2. And then he says sincere or without hypocrisy. And then notice what he says in verse 18. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So here's the source of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom comes from God above. Godly wisdom comes from outside of this world. It comes from God above. In fact, you can go to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6. It tells us, for the, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Understanding is an aspect or a form of wisdom because now you understand how to connect the dots. You understand how to connect God's truth to God's life. That's understanding. That's wisdom. And as James has already told us in James 1.5, if any of you lacks this, if you lack wisdom, well, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so we cannot gain God's wisdom, real wisdom, without turning to whom for it? God himself. Listen, if the source of this wisdom is God, then we need to be those who are very desperate to pray for it and ask God for it. The fact is we need, do we not? Myself, all of us here, we need God's perspective on our lives. We need God's truth 
to shape our thinking. We need God's way to even determine our living. And so we should have the attitude of King Solomon in 1 Kings 3 who who confessed to God that he was but a child and in need of God's help. Oh, that that would be our attitude because only God can give this kind of wisdom that comes from above. So what does this kind of wisdom look like? Well, that brings us to the profile of godly wisdom. And notice that it is motivated by purity and harmony. That would be a a way to summarize all that James says about God's wisdom in verse 17. But notice, let's read it again, what James writes about the wisdom of God in verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, we don't have time to, to look at this profile list one by one. There's, there's eight characteristics here of God's wisdom. But I do want to point out a couple of things about it or make a couple of observations about it. So first of all, notice that godly wisdom, James says, is first what? Pure. God's wisdom is first pure. Purity here refers to moral integrity and holy living, which is the opposite of the world's wisdom. And so unlike the person who lives by the world's wisdom, the person who lives by God's wisdom avoids the corruption and the pollution of sin. He or she doesn't coddle it, embrace it, defend it, promote it, cover it, accommodate it, or even entertain it. You see, to the person who is growing in the wisdom of God, sin becomes more and more abhorrent to them. Because you are growing more and more pure. And James, it's not by accident that he actually puts pure first. Why? Because in James, what he's telling us that purity or pure, it is the overarching characteristic of God's wisdom. Which means, and please hear me with this. If you have no desire to be pure, then you will never be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy and good fruits. In other words, if you do not want to pursue purity, then you can forget about growing in God's wisdom. Don't even bother asking God for it, because He's not going to answer that prayer. And the second thing to notice is that all the other characteristics that follow purity have one thing in common. All the rest of these characteristics of God's wisdom, the one thing they have common is this. They all foster harmony in our relationships with one another. That's why after pure, James says what? What's the very next characteristic? Peaceable. So if you're going to be peaceable in a combative situation with your wife or your children in the home or even with somebody here at church, if you're going to be gentle, even though you know and you were wrong, you will do what? You will forego the right to get even. You will be peaceable. Well, who wants that? Like you, my flesh wants justice, right? 
like you, my, my flesh wants people to pay. But James says, no, you will be full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In other words, God's wisdom now, after purity, it is motivated by harmony in our relationships, which is the opposite of the world's wisdom. Because the world's wisdom, as James has already pointed out to us, is motivated by this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition that only focuses on self. It is all about me, what's best for me. And James is saying the opposite is godly wisdom. These characteristics foster harmony in our relationships with one another. So I hope you're seeing that the fruit of God's wisdom shows itself first and foremost relationally with one another. Why? Because vertically we have a relationship with God Almighty who we are begging and asking for his wisdom to impact our thinking and our living and our speaking. And that shows itself in our conduct. And now we have this beautiful life that is marked by meekness. This is where it's seen. Notice the result now of godly wisdom. Godly wisdom results in righteousness and peace. Worldly wisdom, as we have seen, as James has pointed out, it results in disorder, disharmony, and division. But godly wisdom results in this righteousness and peace for the family of God. So, so here's the question. How do you tell the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom? You tell the difference by the fruit each of them produce. As seen relationally. James says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And what's interesting, as we will see next Sunday in James chapter 4, he will talk about, he, he will ask, he will pose another question, and he will ask, where do quarrels and fights come from? But first, he says, Righteousness flourishes where God's people seek peace. You see, peace is what God desires for our relationships. Peace is what he desires in our homes and in our church. No, not peace at the expense of truth, as in let's just all get along by avoiding truth and ignoring sin. No, James says a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this harvest of righteousness, I wish we had time to really explore this, but let me just say it this way. This harvest of righteousness is this beautiful life that James has already been referencing. This beautiful life that is marked by meekness. And so may we here as a body of believers, may we ask God to remove from us the worldly thinking and worldly wisdom that we're saturated with throughout the week. And may we instead ask God to give us wisdom that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And may we pray that God would use us not to sow disorder and evil, but to harvest, cultivate a, a harvest of righteousness and peace in our relationships with one another. So if there are two ways to live, 
as James has pointed out for us. And only one way works, which is God's way. Then let us grow then, right? That ought to be our motivation. Let us grow in real wisdom for real life. So how do we do this? Let me leave you with two steps on how to grow in real wisdom, how to take this home and begin applying it. First of all, grow in an understanding of the God of the Bible. And then second of all, ask God's people to help you to walk in wisdom. So notice the first step here in growing in rural wisdom. It's to grow in an understanding of the God of the Bible. Not a God of our own understanding. But an understanding of the God of the Bible. Huge difference between the two there. Big difference. Oftentimes you hear people say, well, I just don't think God would. Or you hear them say, I think God would want me to be, and almost always it has to do with happiness. I think God wants me to be happy, therefore I think God would say it's okay for me to do this. Okay, and I just want to say to them, but what are you basing that on? What, what God says in his word or what you think or what you feel or what somebody else thinks, like our culture. And a lot of times what people think or feel, let's just be honest here, it is not biblical. It's based on a God of our own understanding or even imagination. Remember what Proverbs tells us in 9.10. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So if you want to grow in real wisdom, then begin to grow and continue to grow in your understanding of the God of the Bible. Grow in your understanding of who God is as our mighty creator, as our merciful redeemer, as our sovereign king, and as our righteous judge. Remember, God has designed this world, he's designed your life to work in a certain way that ultimately leads to his glory and our joy. Why would we not want to follow that? Well, one reason why people are sometimes resistant to follow that, to live according to God's way, is because their understanding of the God of the Bible, if I can say it this way, is deficient. And here's what I found. Nobody or very few people will give their life and actually follow a God they do not know. They do not understand. But when you grow and continue to grow in your understanding of the God of the Bible who created you, who redeemed you, and will one day return for you, that's when you begin to say to yourself, I will build my life on that. I will build my life on God's wisdom, and I will forsake the wisdom of the world. The second step in growing in real wisdom is then to ask God's people to help you walk in God's wisdom. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors there is safety. This means... We, we, we need to be willing to go to other believers who demonstrate God's wisdom in their lives and, and, and ask them, hey, would you help me to, to walk in God's wisdom, maybe in this particular situation in my life? 
In other words, we need to, to go to them intentionally and ask them to help you see the folly of the world's wisdom in that situation and to encourage you in the wisdom of God. Now, I'll be the first to admit, that is not always a fun deal. That is not always fun. But it is so necessary. Because oftentimes, listen, those people we go to, they can see the blind spots. And the reason they're called blind spots is because, well, we can't see them, can we? If we can't see them, then we don't think we have them. And yet, let's be honest, we all, everyone, and me included, we all have blind spots in our lives. And here's the other thing. When we go through those seasons of life where there's difficulty, there's suffering, there's heartache, there's pain, and we all go through those times where the emotions are running high. Listen, I don't know about you, but for me, my blind spots all of a sudden become huge. They grow bigger, and I'm even more blinded to the wisdom of God in my life. And so we need God's people then even more to kind of help us navigate and walk in the wisdom of God. But most of all, most of all, we need Jesus Christ, do we not? Who is the epitome of wisdom, as Paul tells us, who has made a way for us to walk in God's wisdom. And once again, God, if you remember us, we said from the beginning here, God has designed the world and our lives to work in a specific way that leads to his glory and our joy. But here's the deal. Because of our sin, our world and our lives are broken. This world does not always work. This world is not getting better. This world is broken. And we are living in the midst of a very, a fallen and broken world because of our sin. And that follows the wisdom that comes from below. And the world is not experiencing more joy, more happiness, satisfied life, purpose, and meaning. That is not the experience of the world on the long term, long range. Oh, they, they know moments of it, but not lasting. And it's all as a result of sin. And so we need Jesus Christ more than ever. And so first and foremost, we need Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. We need him to give us a new life in Christ, a new heart, so that we can begin to do what? We can forsake the wisdom of the world, and we can begin to embrace the wisdom of God in our lives and as we progress in that wisdom, all of a sudden, our lives transform into what? A beautiful life. Marked by this meekness that the world knows nothing about. And yes, it sets you apart as someone different. When you have this beautiful life marked by meekness, and oh, does that make a difference relationally with your friends? at home with your wife and your husband, your children, and even with one another here in the church. Oh, do we need the wisdom of God. Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, we need your wisdom now more than ever. We are immersed in the false wisdom of this world. 
And so grant us your wisdom and the grace to live according to your wisdom. And may your wisdom impact our relationships at home and in the church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.